Well, if, you, if you're new to uh, clouds and water, I would love for you to raise your hand either on Zoom or in the Zendo just so I can say hi and welcome. And please don't feel shy when the question time comes if you if uh, I I didn't make things uh, clear enough for somebody that's not uh, a uh, practicing Buddhist person. I want to start with uh, a really beautiful um, acknowledgement and dedication that I didn't write, but that I read and uh, just really loved. And it actually has a title, Practice of Responsibility and Accountability. We dedicate our time together this morning to all those who are suffering. May we remember that our suffering and our well-being are shared. We acknowledge the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples on those whose traditional ancestral and contemporary lands, clouds and water, is an uninvited guest. For those of us who are not indigenous to these lands, may we commit to curiosity and engagement with the lives, justice movements, and sovereignty of the native nations of this territory and beyond. And that goes the same for the native lands that Hokioji is on as well. We offer deep gratitude to our Indian, Chinese, and Japanese spiritual ancestors and contemporaries for all they have given us and for the chance to be here today. May we practice cultural humility. We recognize the black community and the destruction of the historic Rondo neighborhood in which we practice. May we stand side by side in community care. We're all connected. We are all connected. May we work together for the liberation of all beings, for the ease and joy of all beings. I'd also like to uh, dedicate this talk to clouds and water and uh, thank, thank you all for continuing what began for me in 1998 when I started practicing at Clouds and Water. Because I would not be here, I would not be uh, the amazingly different person that I am inside without all of you finding some way every year, every day to support my learning and practice. So thank you so much, really. Okay, I actually did a talk in January in person there, and uh, it was entitled Doing What We See Fit. 
And at the end of that talk, which I'll give you a few highlights of, I said, the next time I come, I want to talk about compassion. So let me give you a little very brief background. Last time I shared a story from uh, the Pali Canon or, or the written uh, records of the Buddhist talks. And there was a uh, Kandaraka Sutta in, I, it's probably not Pali, but it's the language of the, the Buddhist teachings in English translated. And it included uh, an interaction between the Buddha and an elephant uh, uh, um, tender called Pesa. And in short, uh, Pesa's story was that he had come to visit the Buddha's community and was uh, expressing his great appreciation for the practice and the peacefulness and uh, just the excellence of it and how it affected his life. And the Buddha received him, you know, with a lot of joy. Um, and then he talked a little bit about uh, what they were doing. And um, in that conversation, Hesse said, uh, um, it's so great to see everybody here uh, uh, practicing in such an upright way. And they got into a conversation where uh, the Buddha offered a little bit of a teaching and he, he said, let me say something about people that um, uh, and how they torment themselves and others. And he, he asked uh, Pesa to chime in and say, well, you know, how do you see this teaching? And uh, what do you connect with in this teaching? And Pesa said, what I'm really connecting with is the people that you say have found a way not to torment themselves or anybody else. And uh, the Buddha was appreciative of that. But then shortly thereafter, when he invited Pesa to uh, stay for a longer teaching, Pesa said, you know, I'm a busy guy, I gotta go. Uh, and after Pesa left, uh, the Buddha um, turned to the teaching of the larger group that remained. And he said, he was a very knowledgeable and wise man. I respect his practice. He said, but I'm really sorry he left because um, what I'm going to be teaching would have been of great benefit to him. And when he, when Pesa said that he, he couldn't stay because he was so busy, the Buddha used a phrase, this is the time for you to do as you see fit. And that's a story that I think we all uh, have to work with in our lives because we're constantly faced with choices. We're constantly faced with um, our, our yearning to um, make the world a better place, to make our lives better. Uh, and yet, um, because we have a lot of choices, it's, it's hard to know uh, 
what to do and what we see fit to do. And it's a difficult practice that we commit to when we say, I really want to free all beings, including myself. It's hard, hard work. So then I, uh, what I, I said was I, we talked about uh, detachment uh, being one of the key uh, things that we need according to Buddhist teaching, along with compassion, to realize non-suffering, to really become people that are not tormenting ourselves or others. However, uh, we often have some confusion or at least uh, some frustration that's associated with um, what seems to be a contradiction because the Buddha talks a lot about practicing in solitude and in silence and uh, detachment in that sense. Um, and people are often confused because the expression of compassion with all of ourselves and the people that we practice with can't be done if we're detached is usually the confusion that we uh, have to struggle with. So what I said last time was detachments have has a lot of meanings and we tend to uh, associate it with uh, naturally being apart from and being aloof from and that just doesn't seem to go with compassionately connecting in both our actions and you know in our minds with the people that we live with in the universe and on the planet. So on the detachment side of things, the clarification is, is there's uh, a number of meanings with detachment, including being aloof. And that's not uh, the meaning that is um, most important to the practice that we commit ourselves or at least hope to get better at. And in the Buddhist language, there's a, uh, a, a word that can be um, defined as detached. And I'm, I'm not going to use it because it, it won't stick with me or you. Uh, but what it means is detaching from um, the roots of suffering, which essentially is to become intensely well-informed about just exactly what I, me, and mine are and what the human body is and what's really true about it. Uh, and, and that's not easy to see, but it's absolutely required for clarity because if we who have been practicing know a little bit about uh, the, the basic teachings of the Buddha, because the Buddha said, we really don't understand how much we contribute to our own suffering. Which is quite a lot. And that the way we do suffering is because we, uh, we have an idea about what will make us happy and we go chasing after it. And we cling to all kinds of things that actually don't do a very good job of making us fundamentally happen, uh, happy. 
Um, and we do uh, um, behaviors <laughs> like getting angry and uh, uh, stealing and uh, being unkind to people because of the way we're thinking about ourselves and what we deserve and what we need and how we're, or, or we just simply forget that we have uh, a vow to be kind to other people or we're so involved with what we think is important and what we want to do that we're not very attuned to how we can be a contributor to the happiness of other people or also ourselves. So having said that, let's go to the, the topic of compassion. Because compassion uh, in a lot of the Buddhist teachings really is uh, embodied in the practice of the Bodhisattva uh, um, practice of the four divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic uh, or appreciative joy, seeing others' joys as our own. But the way most of the teaching uh, um, has been come down to us is it's expressed as um, more of a meditative practice. So once again, there's this idea uh, there's this idea that um, somehow that's what Buddhism means when it says we need to practice compassion. When in fact, the Buddha was very clear that compassion practice needed to include action. It needed to address and make a difference for people. And I want to uh, take a, a couple of things from my notes about uh, how the definitions in the in the Pali Canon look for compassion for compassion. So one definition is that which makes the heart of the good quiver when others are subject to suffering that which dissipates the suffering of others. Another definition is compassion uproots the wish to harm others and makes people so sensitive to their own suffering as well as other suffering that they do not want to further it increase it. Another definition is it is not self-pity or pity for others. It is really one's own pain and recognizing the pain of others, seeing the web that we are all engaged in. So that has a lot of vitality to it. It makes it very clear that the Buddha was talking about connection. But there's a lot of interconnection that's involved with detachment and the ability to uh, brings compassionate action to people that we know and care about. 
Let me catch up with myself here a second. So how do we uh, jump from detachment to actions of compassion? What the Buddha says is one of the primary sources of non-compassion is attachment to the things that we think we deserve or want. In our country, we have a strong attachment to the word freedom. It's part of what inspires us to, that we love in our, our, our country. So while we're talking about terms, I looked up the word freedom and it has the same problem that compassion does. We have freedom, the power or right to act, speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Now, as parents, which I'm not, I'm a more of a, a aunt, you know, an adopted aunt, but we have a lot of objections to other people's behavior, our children's, our friends, our politicians. So obviously that provides, uh, I mean, we, we have a tremendous amount of resource put into judges so that people can't be totally unrestrained. So we could ask ourselves, well, how can we have and hold up that definition and still say what the world really needs to be about is seeing those who are suffering and bringing compassion to them. Another definition is not being imprisoned or enslaved. And yet there probably has not been any time that we have records of where human beings were not imprisoning or enslaving each other. The state of not being subject to or affected by a particular undesirable thing. So that's some, there's some suffering there. The power of self-determination attributed to the will, unrestricted use of something and familiarity or openness in speech or behavior. So there's a, uh, a lot of ways to look at freedom. And part of the value of compassion practice and detachment uh, in meditation, looking deeply and uh, doing that in a silent, uh, um, solitary way, is that we absolutely must have clarity about how suffering really arises. Or we, we can't help but continue mindlessly to create suffering. So the metta practice that we do, the practice of the Brahma Viharas is a, a kind of mental clarity and the clarity of exactly how suffering arises, which is really the work of the first noble truth of uh, knowing what suffering is in a really deep and thorough way and how we're a part of it. And the second noble truth is abandoning that. We can't do this very clearly without incredible clarity 
and good control of our own minds. So it's a little bit like training to be a professional athlete, a professional bodhisattva, where we may have great big hearts, but those great big hearts have to have clarity. And the place where we can become most clear about how we cause ourselves problems is not looking at others, which is much easier than looking at the own ways we contribute to it, but really seeing something that uh, we're not going to be able to read a lot in textbooks. We have to really experience it and know it for ourselves. When I was writing this talk, uh, I ha had the benefit of having a, a, a flash on a memory of a, a video that one of our, our people that visited here to practice brought with them, a picture of a, uh, a kind of a um, adopted, or as he would say, his pseudo grandson learning how to walk. And he was at the stage where he couldn't actually walk, but he could stand up and fall down. So the reason I bring that up is because it seems to me very much like the process that we need to go through uh, to realize the Buddhist teaching, to realize non-suffering for ourselves and for others. And it is being intimately familiar with that experience. Nobody can really uh, make us able to walk. We have to, in this video, it was great. He had this great big smile on his face and um, he would say to himself, up, up, up. And he would sort of stretch his body and he'd, he'd somehow kind of sort of wobbly get up on his legs and then he'd fall down almost directly and smile greatly. So we also know, if we know children very well, that a smile at, greatly at the end of the falling down part isn't so, so uh, um, consistent. It's not guaranteed. When I was growing up, my mom said I could only crawl backwards and I'd get stuck under the couch and then I'd start screaming. So uh, it's like that, that's how practicing with each other is. <laughs> and if we can uh, kind of take that into our hearts into the, and, and let them quiver, then it's so much easier when we see somebody else learning how to walk and making mistakes and falling down and being frustrated, uh, it makes it so much easier to have compassion. It makes it so much easier for us to uh, want them to be happier human beings and be skillful in providing them help with that. So I think what I want to do at this point is stop talking and ask people to think about 
and possibly share the things that uh, really frustrate them in their practice of living, certainly, but of, of uh, trying to follow the Buddhist path. Where do we get stuck? Where do we see ourselves in a clear way and, and get discouraged and want to give up? Because I think it helps to share those stories with each other. It helps us learn both about ourselves and others. So I know that this is a not easy medium, this Zoom thing with sharing. But uh, I wonder if somebody in clouds can help people, if there's, if there's a possible way to make it possible for people to speak up and be heard. And for people on Zoom uh, to do it as well. And just know that while uh, if you prefer to stay cloaked behind your name, it's really uh, um, appreciated if you're willing to show show your face. Thank you, Kyoku. It's so sun here. Um, one thing that struck me that you shared in the definition of compassion was, um, I don't remember exactly, but it's something like a compassionate person has, is in touch with their own suffering as well as the suffering of others. And I've been thinking about, I mean, a lot of times my challenge is how do I be compassionate? How do I actually feel compassion for people who are causing harm? And I know like the first, the first go-to is having compassion for the people who've been harmed. So I get that and I practice that and that seems easy. But then it's like, how do I bring compassion to those who have caused harm? And I realized that, well, my first thought was like, oh, people who are causing harm, often aren't in touch with their own suffering. And that's why they're causing harm. So then I thought, well, actually, so then I'm figuring out other people, what about me? <laughs> so, so I realized just now that um, when I'm having difficult with that person causing harm, it's because I'm not in touch, actually in touch with my own suffering around that. So if I can be in touch, rather than just like reacting and trying to fix it and change it, if I can actually really be with my own suffering, which is not fun, <laughs> but is wholesome, uh, then I feel like, oh. so I just had a sense of re relief, like, okay, there's, you know, I can continue to practice with this. And it looks like being in touch with my own suffering. And that also means I need to take care of myself and get support so that I can do that. But anyway, just that idea of um, compassion being a compassionate person being one who's in touch with their own suffering, as well as the suffering of others. That's just really helpful. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that forward, because it's an absolutely essential uh, part when we get in touch with our, our own suffering, 
which uh, is not a no-brainer. You know, it's uh, particularly, as you said, when when you feel uh, hurt by, angry about uh, um, how you know it doesn't it doesn't really work to make up a story about the other person, as you said. Um, but when we spend this detachment time and we carry that around with us in every moment, whether we're attending to it or not, but when we uh, were willing to really stay close, we stay close to our own what's happening, which is our whole idea of the world. We, we really have no other way to connect with the world except through this self. So if we commit to and, and try to expand our capability to be continuously mindful without sticking to a view, to see a reaction arise and to be able to pivot to curiosity, which we can't do, uh, you know, on the, on the go unless we have continuous mindfulness, then we, we really uh, are become part of the cause of more suffering, either for ourselves or for other people. And, you know, the Buddha, uh, I, I loved one quote from, from him from the book when he was asked a question, which kind of amounted to, you know, how do you do it? And what he said was giving control and restraint. And the control piece is, I think, the hardest to warm up to because it is like what you do when you're a professional athlete or a baby learning to walk. You engage in really honing your ability to be present, to be uh, capable, which means to be clear about what's really going on, like you said to be clear about, oh, what I need to do is look at the suffering of my anger um, before I can really have a tool to provide help to somebody else. So this is, I think, one of the hardest parts of practice. That's at least what the Buddha said. He said, to control the mind is the most difficult thing to do, to control the mind. And so that's why this detachment thing is so important because we can't really uh, get to controlling the mind without spending a lot of time sitting in silence in inside ourselves and really looking at it. We can't we need that uh, kind of training, just like a professional athlete does. They do things that help them be skillful again and again and again and again and again. And that's just, uh, it's hard to uh, warm up to that unless you have a really vivid understanding of how that's creating your own suffering and of how damaging it can be to others. I'll shut up again and hope somebody else will 
share. Well, I can say so. Oh, hold on. Oh, sorry. Somebody online. Go ahead. Go. Good morning, Kyoku. Uh, this is Yuho Dick McMullen. Nice to see There you are. <laughs> I'm remembering my second week here at Clouds back in 2017, when you offered, you were, you were teaching the introductory class, and I have fond memories of you teaching me that second week I was here. So thank you for your teaching. So I'm, as you're talking this morning, I'm thinking about something similar to what you were mentioning a minute ago, Sosan. Um, that our suffering in close relationships um, kind of we can trigger each other you know in a marriage relationship in relationships within a human race in relationships across human races <laughs> resma menikum says um, as our he puts it a little bit differently than this but as our as our suffering expresses itself through our physical bodies, quote, our bodies scare the hell out of each other, end quote. <laughs> um, would, would you care, would you care to, to comment just a little bit on how, how we can work with relationships that are close, where those relationships have resulted in each of us, or myself and another person, or members of a group, or members across groups, are finding their suffering come up, and other members, you know, a marriage partner, another member of a group, or people across groups, notice the suffering, and then maybe I become the trigger for someone else's suffering to arise, and then they become, if it can kind of become a reciprocal, kind of a difficult reciprocal um, expression of suffering. That, that's my question, thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Dick. It's, uh, it, it's exactly what helps us uh, learn from each other. And we all have that problem. We, none of us, um, have perfect relationships with other people. I think uh, the process, again, that Soslan was talking about, where there's a recognition. So if we can start training and with patience and kindness to ourselves, being able to catch ourselves when that happens. So first, oh, I'm really angry at this other person or I'm being mean to this other person because I have something that I'm, excuse the expression, pissed off about. And 
what that's helped me do in my life, it doesn't always happen right in the moment, <coughs> but it uh, when it surfaces, so because sometimes it's like I'm just so mad I walk away, but I've been because of, of that uh, inclination to say, how can I not be pissed off? How does this Buddhist thing work? That actually, as we practice it, enables us to say, okay, so what's going on with this anger? What's going on with this disappointment? What's, uh, um, and first, uh, uh, really listening to what's going on with us. What are we wanting? What are we thinking we should have? One of the things I've discovered is sometimes I uh, am unhappy about something and I, I kind of project it on somebody else. I kind of turn it around as if they're the one that's causing the problem. Uh, and that has enabled me and my own practice to be better at recognizing when what I am is uh, unhappy because I'm not getting something I, I, I want. And it may be that that person has actually very little to do with it. Um, it it's not really their problem. It's how I'm looking at things. If they've done something that's really uh, harmful, then uh, I do my best to shift to remembering that they're just like me and the way that they suffer. And that, uh, I mean, that's very difficult in cases where somebody seems to be doing intentional harm of great magnitude or deep grief. And yet we can look back on history um, we can look back on our own history and other people's history and we can see, wow, we, uh, how we get sucked into things that, um, how we can just go off track, you know, just all of a sudden it's like, where did that come from? How could I do that to myself or somebody else? And to be able to take that back into the relationship and really just as much as we learn for ourselves about how suffering arises, that quivering, you know, one of the definitions in, included makes the heart of the good quiver. Well, it makes the heart of the people who are trying to be good quiver too. <laughs> so it's really bringing that empathetic viewpoint in. It's like this is... Uh, appreciation of humanness and how much easier that is to see uh, as a pain and un with understanding in others when we have some um, good practice seeing exactly how it arises and how it makes us and other people miserable. It just changes the ground a little bit. We, we kind of let go of the story of the pain or especially the suffering of it and just begin to understand that that's, this is what 
this is what um, we do to each other. This is, this is how we create more pain and then call on some of our practice where we're learning more about uh, how, we, how we can actually show up as caring people. And sometimes the way that looks is to say, this is wrong, this is harmful, I'm not gonna let you do this. And that involves a lot of risk and a lot of clarity. So we also need to see how good our intentions can be um, and how much trouble we can get into with them. Because usually kind of beginner compassion is we wanna do good, but usually we're pretty tied up in what that good looks like and uh, what kind of credit we get for it or uh, that kind of thing. Um, but that's where we have to start because that's just like a baby learning to walk. That's just how we are until we have more expert balance. Then, you know, we're not going to be able to walk in the shoes of the Buddha. And every time if, if we resolve, can I make good use of this mistake? Can I make good use of this observation of exactly how this rises and how it makes me feel in my body? Because it might not be my heart quivering. It may be my brain or something quivering uh, because I'm so angry or I'm so outraged. Uh, long, long answer, but that's, that's the best I've got for you today. <laughs> I want to check with uh, Oops Kim Okay, I, I didn't know if you wanted to zoom people to find So my question is related to, can you hear me? My question is related to Dick's question, um, but I am navigating um, an emotionally abusive relationship with my mother. And uh, emotional abuse is around um, uh, not being able to identify when harm is happening. Our, our roles are swapped where I'm the parent and she's the child. And so oftentimes the abuse doesn't present itself as anger. Oftentimes I feel like I'm actually here to and it, it doesn't have a it doesn't have that feel I'm having to recognize it as abuse. I'm having to say, oh, this is actually even though it feels good, I'm having to recognize this is actually not an appropriate behavior. And I'm, I'm learning to recognize that, but uh, I'm, it's a very difficult pattern to shift. And the stage where I'm at right now is that at least I'm recognizing when I'm in the middle of it. For example, um, I'm ill and I need to eat very nutritious, dense foods, and liver helps me uh, get better. I'm living with my parents. My mom is nauseous with liver, and is a, she will not let me cook liver in the house because it makes her. 
And so, uh, next up. <laughs> uh, so I, I've chosen not to have a conversation with her about, you know, it makes me well, because I know that I can't end that. I can't end it. So I'm basically taking care of my mother because she is uncomfortable. And actually, I know that I can physically benefit from I welcome you. Thank you. Uh, I think that was Kim. Is, it, is that right? All right. So this is uh, when we turn compassion inward, which you're doing. But also, it it uh, it involves um, some detachment in order to just recognize. I don't have the skill. I don't have the patience or the resource right now in this moment. Um, I can't escape it. Uh, it becomes a recognition of things we can't change as well as things we might be able to change or become better at. Uh, I think where you are right now from my own uh, um, experiences is a beautiful place to be because the first thing you're starting with is let me see as clearly as I can what's actually happening and let me see as clearly as I can how I'm feeling you're giving yourself the capability to be your own bodhisattva for yourself to be able to say oh this is what's going on. And that gives you uh, um, knowledge, it gives you clarity, which allows you to start experimenting with how can, what can I offer in this situation. The very hardest things are the things that, that we just aren't skillful enough, but even worse than that, there's just not a way out. When it comes to some of our history, we can see that indigenous peoples did their best, but they couldn't find a way through having their land stolen. That the people that were enslaved were enslaved. And so there's a way in which we, uh, without understanding it really penetrate the truth of things as they are. There is pain. The Buddha was very clear about that. So he didn't promise that there was always an out or that we would understand or develop the capability for that. But he did try very hard to get through to us and to help us understand uh, the the really very subtle balance of clarity and how detachment can help. Um, and again, to be frank, it still sucks. Um, so it's good to have uh, the Brahma Viharas, the, the, the abodes of having compassion for ourselves the tools of Tonglen. It's like, how do I bear the pain? 
how do I bear the pain? But if it's pain and suffering, and we can use our Buddhist teaching to not have that second arrow, that second way of taking something that's painful and unavoidable and making it into something that um, will, will grow and cause more, more pain. I just thank want you. to thank you for sharing uh, uh, in such a candid way. Um, it, I think it helps to know that even though there are things that only we can do, that we don't have to do them alone. Thank you, Kyoku. We are unfortunately at the end of our time together. So thank you. <laughs>